Well, we continue our series on the family, and we have two texts today. Uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 and then Ephesians 5. You can turn there in your copy of God's Holy Word. Genesis chapter 3 and then Ephesians chapter 5. As we continue our series on, mar- on the family, rather, uh, we heard first about the fear of the Lord as foundational for the Christian home. And then we looked at the institution of marriage, where we saw the closeness of the marriage bond, the closest companions that any human uh, beings can have this side of glory. And now we are going to look at the final theological framework for an understanding of marriage today before we continue on and look at more pointed applications in marriage. We're going to look at uh, a theology of marriage as seen both in its ruin in the fall and its redemption in Christ. So first, Genesis chapter 3, I'll I'll begin reading at the beginning of the chapter, Uh, read down to 21, but uh, our focus will be on verse 16. Give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. 
And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. We'll leave it there. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word thus far. Ephesians 5, we will begin the reading in verse 22 in that text. Uh, Actually, 21. Please give your attention once again to the reading of God's word, Ephesians 5, 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now for the preaching of the word. O oh Lord, there are so many glorious matters found in these two texts, and uh, the minister without the Spirit of God cannot preach faithfully to the flock. Father, there is much in these texts that go against our flesh. And so, Father, we pray that the Spirit of the Lord would be on the minister who preaches, that he wouldn't preach his opinion on matters of marriage, but really what the text teaches, and that the people of God would receive Uh, what the word of God says, that it comes from their God and not from the mouth of this man, insofar as it is true to the word of God. Would you bless your people now that all the marriages that are here or will ever be would be strengthened, Father, in the Lord. We ask this for the glory of Christ, who has a glorious bride, and yet that bridegroom is far greater than the church. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, most marriages are quite disordered even in the church. I'm not taking an official poll, but the sense of it in my experience, as well as talking to other ministers, is that marriage counseling is quickly becoming one of the greatest needs in the church of Jesus Christ. Many marriages are terribly disordered, and often husbands and wives are resigned to it. They just resign themselves to it. Or they are even utterly blind to the disorder in their marriage, at least until suddenly a major problem erupts in their marriage. And so we must be wise, and God makes us wise if we would listen to him. We must be wise as to why this is. It's because, first and foremost, that the curse on man has gravely affected marriage. You saw that in Genesis 3. There are particular curses on the marriage relationship. 
Not only right, does the curse affect marriage in this way, that there are two sinners, even redeemed in Christ, two sinners, sinful people, interacting with one another in a very near and close relationship. But marriage itself has had some bit of a curse specifically applied to it, as labor has, as we read in Genesis chapter 3. These good gifts have challenges because that is our due for rebellion against God. And we would not be with hope today if that was where the Bible left things. And so we're thankful for Ephesians chapter 5, which shows us that we have a Redeemer who redeems his people, who loves his bride, and can even redeem marriages. In the gospel, Jesus Christ has come to reverse the curse. He says he has come to make all things new, not only to restore and revive our individual souls, but even to restore marriage to its proper place, preeminently so because his gospel is a marriage bond between him and his church. So not only does the heavenly marriage between Christ and his church give us hope for our salvation, but it also provides a pattern and a picture of what can be ours by the grace of God in our earthly marriages. To know all of this from these two texts will enable us to put to death what disrupts a marriage and seek the cure for it from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as we order our marriages according to the heavenly pattern and not the pattern in Genesis chapter 3. And so with that brief introduction, our theme is uh, reflecting that our ruin and our redemption teach us our right roles in marriage, to order our marriages correctly by the grace of God seen in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is important before we get to specific applications. Because it is the gospel preeminently that gives us hope in our marriages. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you came and said, here are some do's and don'ts in marriage, well, that wouldn't have any power to it without the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll consider this theme under three heads. First is ruin. Second is redemption. Third is roles. First, ruin. Well, in Genesis 3.16, you find that sin brought sorrow into the world. Sorrow, particularly, there's a curse on the woman. Sorrow in childbearing for the woman. And uh, I don't have to tell mothers here this. They know very well, keenly, by experience, that there is this sorrow in childbirth of pain. But also, as we looked at Genesis 3, we find that the curse also includes, sad to say, sorrow in the nearest and dearest of all earthly relationships, sorrow in marriage. The fall of mankind affects every marriage on the earth because, as I've said, marriage is composed of two sinners, but the curse also affects marriage in particular ways. And as you consider the great gift that marriage was in Genesis chapter 2, this is really our just desserts, so to speak, for this close relationship that we have with one another in marriage, this great gift that Adam had longed so greatly for this woman. And it is a just punishment on mankind for our rebellion against a good God who has given such a good gift to man. It is part of the chastening of man and woman after the fall. It is a consequence for our rebellion against God. This is where we have to begin with rebellion and sin. 
in order to understand that it is Jesus Christ alone that can order a marriage because he is the cure to sin. It is the gospel that reverses the curse. Genesis 3.16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire, here is the part for marriage, thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Consider the curse on the husband and wife relationship. Both husband and wife are affected by it, we see here. And even as Christians, even though we are born again, our fallen flesh is affected by this curse, as our sinful desires reflect the curse. What's happened here? Let's start with the woman. The text says her desire shall be to her husband. Now, we must not misunderstand that word desire here. Her curse is not, in other words, that she longs for her husband. No, she should desire her husband. A woman should, and a man should desire his wife. The curse is she desires his position in the marriage. She desires his leadership, his headship. She will now seek to domineer, to rule over him, to usurp and undercut his leadership. That's very clear in the parallel text in Genesis 4, verse 7. When the Lord speaks to Cain about sin, listen to these words, If thou doest well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire. That's that same word that uh, is used in the curse. His desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Is God saying sin, you know, sin is going to long for you, Cain? It's going to want to love on you? No. Sin desire to rule over Cain. And that's the same sense here. So it is with the wife. She will desire to rule over the man to usurp his role. You know, in every society, even the the one that I I grew up in, you know, uh, Sri Lankan. But every society has a saying that kind of reflects this. In our society, we might speak of a wife and say of her, she wears the pants in the family, right? As though she runs the household, right? She's the one in charge. She's the head of the home. And we say that because we know that the man ought to be the head of the home. Well, what about the husband? Genesis 3.16 says, and he shall rule over thee. Uh, The man will seek to force his wife into submission. He will not be a loving and kind leader. He will be overbearing. And sad to say, he might even use his physical strength to try to put down and subjugate the woman. There is a reason that there are many battered women's shelters. That's a result of the curse, sad to say. So rather than loving leadership, Sweet companionship, where the song in Adam's soul was once bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There's now domination from the man and defiance from the woman. A battle of wills. You know, we talk about the battle of the sexes. Well, that is from Genesis 3.16. That's where that arises, where these two sexes battle it out in marriage. And in husbands, right, this is why I read more of that text. In husbands, the head of the home, right, who essentially, as the world says, the buck stops here. What happens? We find blame shifting now. He refuses when it's convenient to not take ownership of his home and his sin and blames God. Genesis 3.12, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Adam received this great gift from God, the woman, out of God's kindness. And what does he do? Not even so much that the sin is greater in this sense, not so much that he blames the woman for the sin, but he blames God for giving her to him. This woman whom thou gavest to be with me, this woman who God had given him in kindness to be a help meet 
for him. He blames God for giving him the woman. He blames her and he absolves himself of his sin. This is a pattern that husbands have to be aware of in marriage. You will despise, sad to say, the wife God gave you. You will, in fact, blame him for bringing her to you, the woman who thou hast gavest to be with me. As though, Adam says, it would have been far better, God, if you had just left me with the animals. And my sin, right? Does he take any culpability for his own sin? No, it's all on her and it's all on you, God, not on me. Charging evil to God is what Adam did, a terrible evil. And you think of this. What forbearance and patience there is in God. He could have smote Adam right then and there. And if you had the power of God, you probably would have yourself. How dare you say such things, charging me with evil. But here is the goodness and kindness of the forbearance of God to let this creature of the dust say such things to him. That said, in marriage, you must be aware of the corruptions of your flesh, men and women. You are affected by the curse and you are affected by the fall. These traits are found in different portions in every man and woman in marriage. And what God has designed is a harmonious home filled with intimacy, companionship, help one to another. Our sinful flesh wants to turn into disharmony and despisal one of another. The husband and wife each jockeying for superiority. Both husband and wife deny and despise God's loving design for themselves. We have to say this, we have to admit it, we have to begin in Genesis 3, because otherwise we can be blind to these tendencies in marriages, and we can work against marriage, we can go and and follow the curse, rather than go and follow the redemptive picture that God has for us in the gospel. And then we wonder, right, we have the temerity to wonder, we give in to the sinful flesh, and we have the temerity to wonder, why do I have such a difficult marriage when I'm living according to the curse? when I've been working with the curse and against the design, original design. But you must also strike at the root of the problem, right? That's why we begin in Genesis 3, and God shows us this. The root of the problem is rebellion against God, ultimately, for both parties. Every problem, and you can take this past marriage, that's why I said this, this series will have something for everybody. Every problem we face, whether in marriage or otherwise, has its root there, doesn't it? Rebellion against God. But especially the curse on marriage comes after Adam and Eve's rebellion against the Lord. Rebellion against God's will. That's where it begins. Mark it well. This causes all the problems. That's why Psalm 128 says, Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. Both men and women in marriage must search out the scripture in the fear of God and ask themselves, in my marriage, am I conducting myself as God would have me? As the wife, am I trying to take on my husband's God-given role as the leader? As the husband, am I living with my wife with understanding as Peter exhorts us? Am I leading her lovingly or am I domineering and am I blaming all of my household's problems on the woman that thou hast given me, God? Am I lording it over her? But if the problem is caused by rebellion against God, this is the beauty of the gospel, right? If, If the problem is rebellion against God, the solution is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the solution in every marriage. 
The gospel restores the place of God in our lives through Christ. It's a gospel that forgives us of our sins. As signified, right, we read a little bit more of Genesis 3 on those coats of skin that Adam and his wife were clothed with. The gospel forgives us of our sins, but also the gospel gives us new hearts with new desires to live for God and to order our lives to honor God. It's only through the gospel, mark this well, husbands and wives, that you can hope for a blessed marriage. It will not be through self-help books on how to improve your marriage. No, in Christ alone is hope for every marriage that is tarnished by the fall. Even the steps that we will take later in this series to apply biblical wisdom must be done in Christ. John 15.5 He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. We praise God for this other truth as we're about to see it. We praise God that Jesus Christ loves marriage. So much so that the gospel is pictured by marriage. And so our hope ought to grow for our own marriages. That if we would honor Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ loves his church and he shows us this by marrying her, that there is hope for every marriage that seeks to honor the Lord Jesus Christ because our Lord honors and loves marriage. And that's what we will consider in our second heading, redemption. In Ephesians 5, we find that the mystery of marriage is a revelation of Christ's gospel. It is a revelation of the love of the Son of God for his church, his bride. The Holy Spirit invokes the institution of marriage we heard last time in Genesis 2. In Ephesians 5, verses 30 and 32, the apostle being carried by the Spirit of God said this, For we are members of his, that is Jesus' body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage reveals for us the remarkable wonder of the gospel. You think about it. If you think of marriage in these terms, you think of the Son of God in the terms of marriage, that the Son of God leaves the Father from above, the second person of the Trinity come to earth from his Father to be what? Bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh to be united to his church. In that, friends, what you have to see and you have to put away what the world says, you have to see how honorable the estate of marriage is simply because it is a picture of Christ's love for the church. That the Son of God, it is so honorable that the Son of God enters a marriage with his church. That's what ultimately gives your marriage honor and value. That it it reflects something that the Son of God loves so much that he would enter into it. This is why the world, you know, when we talked last time, that the world is in the habit of mocking and despising marriage. Why? It's because they want to mock and despise Jesus Christ. And we fall into that whenever we mock and despise marriage. That's why marriage is under attack and the world seeks to undermine it. It is a picture of Christ's love. And Jesus, you think of this, will be in the married estate eternally, wed to his bride, his church, never to divorce her, never to put her away, always to love and cherish her. And the church in return, when she is glorified especially, will ever adore and reverence her heavenly bridegroom. So what is the honor 
And what is the glory of marriage? Again, Jesus Christ has entered into it. Do not treat your marriage lightly then, or despise it, friends. Jesus Christ loves marriage. In that, right, we look at the parallels now between these texts, and we see how different Jesus and Adam are. And you remember that elsewhere, the Bible calls Jesus the last or second Adam. And where the first Adam brought ruin to his bride, the second Adam brings redemption to his bride. Whatever the first Adam was meant to be, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, is. And you think on this, right? Even you think about him blaming God for the woman. Adam blames his wife and he blames God for giving her to him. But Jesus Christ takes his wife's sinfulness on himself. And as the father gave Adam Eve, the father is the one who gives Jesus his wife. All that the father has given to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's the heart of Jesus. And did Jesus ever blame his God for giving him a sinful wife? No. Like Hosea, who goes to redeem Gomer, he redeems her without quarrel. God says to Christ, in effect, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms. And he does. He takes those who are God's elect, even you, believer, with all your whoredoms. And he marries you to himself. And so what does our text say about Christ's love for the church? Verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. What a difference between the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam blames the Lord for his wife. The second Adam willingly takes a whore and washes her with the water of the word. Washes her with the blood and water that poured out of his side at Calvary to present it to himself, a glorious church, one that is holy and without blemish, covering her with his love to give her his own righteousness as a gift. Well, not only is man's redemption found in the marriage of Christ to his church, but we also find in this text And this is where we will focus now, that this text is the pattern for marriage, which is patterned after not the marriage in Genesis 3, but the marriage in heaven. Before we get into specific duties, which will come in future sermons especially, I want you to consider the tenor of the heavenly marriage. And it can be summed up really in two words, mutual love, mutual love, husbands, Love your, verse 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Sacrificial love from husband to wife, even willing to lay down his life for her, not born out of reluctant duty, because that's not how Christ laid down his life, but out of willing love as Christ did. The husband is then to consider his wife's life above his own. In a lot of ways, she must have more value to him than his own life. So you can ask the question, I suppose it's appropriate, even though we don't want to get into too much application today, in what way, husband, have you willingly, freely sacrificed for your wife? In what way have you put her needs over your own? You know, there are many women who scrimp and save and sacrifice on clothing and food while their husbands go and spend the money on themselves and their lusts. And they don't think to put their wives' needs over their own, much less anything else. 
That's a convicting thing. But the pattern is your Savior, men. The husband is even to treat her as his own flesh. They are one. Verse 28 through 29. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. You know, if this was the tenor of leadership in the home, how could this husband ever be a tyrant? The Lord Jesus Christ, our head, he's no tyrant. He's no despot. He doesn't lord it over us, so to speak. But he serves his people. For the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and give himself a, uh, his life a ransom for many. And if the husband's life is then, uh, his love rather, is sacrificial, the wife's love is to be reverential. In verse uh, 33, the wife is to reverence her husband as the church reverences Christ. This is a reverence out of love, not out of slavish fear. In Titus 2.4, what do the aged women teach young wives? To love their husbands. Reverential love causes a wife to think on how to please her husband. 1 Corinthians 7.34, but she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This is what that love produces in the wife. Wives, when did you last ask the question, how can I please my husband? When did, when did you say, let me think on my husband's desires and his wants and let me try to please him? Obviously in non-sinful ways, we'll get to that later. But in any lawful way, what are his desires, what are his wants, and let me try to please him? You see, in both husband and wife, love is saying, Let me think on the other person. Husbands ask out of love, how may I sacrifice for my wife? How can I nourish her? How can I cherish her? And the wife asks out of love, how may I please my husband? You see, these are uh, supposed to be the disposition of our hearts in marriage. And if this was the disposition of our heart, by God's grace, how could we ever run afoul of the curse? Mutual love through sacrifice and reverence, as opposed to the curse of mutual domination in Genesis 3.16. Now, again, this series has applications outside of marriage, earthly speaking. If you are married or not, if you are a Christian, the question should have rung in your ears in 1 Corinthians 7.34, how may I please my husband? That ought to be on your, your mind, bride of Christ. You ought to be thinking, how may I please my heavenly husband? Men and women both are to ask it in Christ because he is the bridegroom of every believer, right? How she may please her husband. That's the church's disposition. How may I please my heavenly husband? We talked about this in the new members class in terms of worship. We ask always, right? What does my Lord want? How may I please him? And that's what it is in the marriage relationship, And in your earthly marriages, husbands and wives, before you think of the other person, your first question must always be, how may I please Jesus Christ in my marriage? And then the marriage will go well. If you miss that, that your obedience in marriage is about pleasing Jesus first, it's not first about your husband, it's not first about your wife, it's not first about your desires, but pleasing Christ. If you think that, then you will find blessings in marriage duties and the relationship. 
And that's why this section on marriage and family is prefaced with the fear of the Lord again. Verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And this kind of godly love in marriage, in sacrifice, or in reverence, will never be taught by the world. This is anathema to the world. The world's idea of love is what? Especially since the 1960s, do what feels good. That love is about your feelings and whatever you want. They teach you you can fall in and you can fall out of love. But you think on it this way. How would a man ever fall out of love when he puts his wife above himself? And how can a woman fall out of love when she is always thinking of pleasing her husband? If this is done by the grace of God, you will never fall out of love because this is true love. When the Lord even speaks of the marriage bed, he speaks of it in these terms as rendering due benevolence, 1 Corinthians 7.3. Even that expression of the marital union is a giving of ourselves for the other person. It's never, uh, we'll, we'll treat this topic in another time, but it is never about self-gratification. It is an earnest seeking to love and please our spouse. It's not even a duty, right? It is a duty in a sense, but it's sometimes spoken strictly that way, the marriage duty. But it is meant to be an expression of love rendering due benevolence. And let me just say that in marriage counseling, in my experience and the experience of godly counselors I know, many problems, they arise because one or both spouses violate this law of love. That's really it. You know, I would say all husbands and wives and those to be married, all of us, um, not just those to be married, but all of us, but especially husbands and wives, should be well acquainted with 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, and we say, this is a chapter I know quite well, Pastor. Do we really? I don't think so. I really don't. Charity suffereth, charity or love, suffereth long. Do we know that? And is kind. Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. How many marriages are the couples easily provoked? Thinketh no evil. How many marriages do we have husband or wife thinking the worst of the other? Rejoiceth not in iniquity, doesn't love sin, but rejoiceth in the truth. And here's the difficulty especially, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. None of us are born with this understanding of love. This is the grace of God, not in this rich and uh, deep way. Love like this is a grace from God, and you must ask it. Your flesh actually despises this kind of love because you see here, it is about you yourself perhaps even suffering in love, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Your flesh, on the other hand, asks, if I love this person, what can I get out of it? That's how the flesh thinks of love. We need to think in love on the other person instead. Ultimately, husbands and wives, you need to Love your spouse for this particular reason foremost, which is to please Jesus Christ. 
Right? If you get the fact that he is your heavenly husband and that the marriage relationship is something he has ordered and he is pleased with you even sacrificing for it, then you will bear all things, you will believe all things, you will hope all things, and you will endure all things. I watched a lecture on marriage some time ago by Dr. Alan Cairns. You know, he's a free Presbyterian minister at Ulster. He said, a poor man came to his church one day and he was just frustrated about his marriage. And he said that this man told him, that uh, his own pastor had been telling him, you know, in order to have a better marriage, because their marriage was difficult, love Christ first, love your wife second, and then third, love others. And this man told Dr. Cairns, I'm paraphrasing all this, I don't remember, it's been a while. He, he said something to this effect, I have tried to do this, and I'm just ready to throw my Bible out. I am so frustrated. But in response, Dr. Cairns wisely said, that the pastor's advice was insufficient. He said, it is not first love Christ, second love your wife, and third love others. He said, it is first love Christ, second love Christ, third love Christ. And you love all others through Christ. And that is the key. That is the key. You must love your wife or husband in Christ and not apart from Christ. You must see them. This is why Peter will later on say that you are co-heirs of the grace of God. You must both see each other in Christ and not apart for it. This goes for both husband and wife. If your affections are stayed on Christ, if you love and reverence Christ, well, you will say, I will bear any cross in marriage. And more than that, the Lord will give you manifold blessings if you make your marriage about him. Why would he not honor you if you honored him? Well, I'm I understand I'm crossing into too many applications today. I'll rein myself in. But you can see how Christ's love and redemption restores marriage out of its ruin. What the first Adam made a mess of, Christ redeems for the sake of his bride. And to the born-again heart, he gives a pattern to sanctify your own marriage. The sum, then, of the husband and wife's duty to one another is love, sacrificial love from the husband, and reverential love from the wife. And that will take us to our final heading, which is roles. And this will be expanded on greatly in upcoming sermons. But I want to give you the high-level overview so that you might understand them in their place. Both husband and wife are given specific roles in a marriage. Uh, Marriage is not uh, egalitarian, in other words. Uh, In the next sermon, we will consider the specific role that the wife holds, which is where actually Paul begins in Ephesians 5.22. But for our remaining time, I want us to gain an overview of the roles. We've already circled around uh, the husband's duty to sacrifice and the wife's duty to reverence her husband. Those duties, though, are reflective of the position the man and woman have in marriage. And they are reflective, as Paul says, of the roles of Christ and his church in the heavenly marriage. Verse 22 to 24, listen to this. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, As unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, see this connection, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, the wife is to submit to their own husband. Not every man, not every husband, their own husband. And the husband is to be the head of the wife, the head of the home. He is the leader. And the wife is to be subject to their own husband in everything. And that's the order that the fall put into disorder. 
Even in this order, what must be understood is that though there is a headship here, it is the closest possible relationship this side of heaven, so that it is so very close to equality. Remember, the woman was taken out of the man's side as a help meet or suited for him. Remember, not to be trampled on, not to be his head, but to be cherished and loved as Christ loves the church. And she is to be respected by her husband, even in her faults and her failings. She is to be honored by the husband. First Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge or understanding, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that what? This is important, husbands. That your prayers not be hindered. Heirs together of the grace of life. Partners together in grace. Husbands, you are to honor her. You are to live with and we'll look at this later another time, with understanding of her. You are to know her. She is the weaker vessel. And what does the Lord show all throughout the scriptures? That he has a special care for the weaker party. And that is why when she is not honored and not respected and she is treated poorly, your prayers, husbands, are often hindered. And even in your headship, husbands, your wife's input must be considered. And we'll look at this again another time, but a husband can choose to delegate all kinds of authority to his wife. She's still a help meet for him, though she is in marriage the subordinate party. Though he is the head, he is responsible to God, right? As the head, he is responsible to God for the management of the home. He cannot shirk his duties, and he must never abdicate his spiritual headship of the home. And that's another topic. Many homes are turned upside down because the husband refuses to do his spiritual duties to his family, not going to church with them, not leading them in family worship. And sadly, many wives take on the roles of spiritual leaders in the home. That's a terrible thing in many ways, though. If the husband won't do it, it is better that the wife lead the children in spiritual matters uh, as Timothy's mother and grandmother did. But we'll consider that topic in a separate sermon in the future. But there are many things that the husband can delegate to the wife and give her some authority over. Um, now, back to the submission of the wife. In their submission, wives are called to submit to their husband as, and these are challenging words, um, ladies, as unto the Lord. Meaning that there has to be a similar kind of reverence, similar, not the same, Reverence for her husband as to Christ himself. It also limits her obedience to her husband in a crucial area, that if he demands of her something the Lord would forbid, she must obey God and not her husband. He says, don't go to church. I don't want you reading the Bible. Well, she cannot. She cannot do that. And she must say, I will obey God rather than man. But if he's not breaking the commandments in other matters, she must obey her husband. And again, this is challenging. And I know, ladies, your flesh hates it because uh, my flesh hates being subordinate to anybody as well in everything. Verse 27 says, she must obey her husband in everything. With the rise of egalitarianism, even in the churches, this is unpopular. And uh, I'm aware that our national motto is essentially, don't tread on me. And so our society also has further difficulties. But you think of this also, that um, our flesh is so prone, and and ladies, um, just speaking generally uh, of subjugation, or not subjugation, that's that's a word that sounds harsh today, though it is a 
biblical word. To be subordinate to another is difficult for our flesh. After all, if we will rebel against God, we'll rebel against anyone. But we're all called to be subject to one another, even in verse 21, in the fear of God. You will need to depend on the grace of God to do this, ladies. Uh, Listen to what it says, submit yourselves. And this is really kind of a fascinating phrase. In other words, your husband could demand you to submit. There might come a time for that. I think in a godly marriage, those are few and infrequent. But the Bible doesn't say your husband makes you submit. It says submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. You see, you must seek the grace of God to submit yourself to your husband, to reverence him, and to follow his leadership. Husbands will have to take her input in, weigh uh, her protests if there are protests. You must make decisions with understanding that she is a co-heir of the grace of life and to be honored. But in a tie, right, in a tie, you have one of two options. You have to choose to either let the matter go or you will have to say as the leader of the home husband, we must do this or that. And your wisdom that you must seek from God, as Solomon did, is to know when to do when, which And wives, unless it is sinful, you need to resign yourself to God and submit to his leadership cheerfully. Husbands making sure that their leadership is never a domineering one. You know, and this is very unpopular when the, uh, what is the expression, smash the patriarchy, right? This is what uh, people are learning today. Um, Patriarchy, though, is what the Bible teaches, the leadership of men in the home. And I know that a... uh, issue has arisen where there's a cartoon kind of form of it that's come into Reformed churches. And I was just thinking about some of the ways, I was talking to some minister friends about this because it's almost absurd, where there are men who are boys playing a part like little girls do with their uh, dolls' tea parties, think that to smoke cigars and grow long beards and drink whiskey and tell it like it is to others, usually on social media and podcasts, is manliness. While their wife is all by themselves with the children, That is what they believe it is to be a man. But such men are just role-playing. I mean, I think for godly men, you look on that and you think these are just boys who are trying to play a part. Because when Paul tells men to be men and stand fast in the faith and be manly, hear what he says. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. And I think so many stop there. But what does it say? Let all things be done with charity. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. Husband, you want to be steadfast and strong. Want to quit you like men. Let all things be done towards your wife with charity. And wives, you are not to resist and fight against your husband's leadership. You know, so much evil in families has arisen from women who refuse to be like Sarah. 1 Peter 3, 5 through 6. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being, here's that word that we hate, in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters are ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement or terror. Do you hear what the Bible says, ladies? The holy women who trust in God are in subjection unto their own husbands. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And I remember this from seminary. Um, 
a friend in seminary from another country. Uh, I won't reveal it, as that might give it away. His wife, uh, when they first moved here, uh, she was always in the habit of calling him Lord. She did it herself. Uh, he never once asked her to do it. But she did it because she read First Peter 3 and was convicted. And she said, I will do it. She was a godly woman, a sweet soul. She did it because she said here that the women, holy women who trusted in God were in subjection unto their own husbands. It's not a requirement to call your, your husband uh, Lord, and my wife would probably never do that. But uh, that said, it, it is the expression of her heart that was really at the key here, that she was willing to even express it verbally. And regardless of whether the word is there, the sentiment ought to be there in the heart of a wife. None of this is popular. But women, let me just say, if you've tried everything else and you say, I don't know what else to do, would you try this? This is the path God has ordained to blessing in marriage. Just as a husband sacrifices for his wife and puts her needs above his own, that husband will find the path of blessing. And the wife who is willing to subject herself to her husband in, in non-sinful ways, mind you, will find the path of blessing. You know, it, and if this is all new to you, and you haven't considered what the Bible says on these things before, um, and you've grown up in the world, this is probably all being, uh, pro- you've probably been programmed to think this is all disgusting. And that is very sad. You know, if you've patterned yourself on the world's ideas in marriage, let me ask you this question. Have you seen the world? Have you looked at the marriages in this world? And is that what you want? Egalitarianism and the fruit of it? No, you don't want that. Why would you ever think that the world's ideas for marriage are worthy of consideration? Your flesh is foolish. Divorce after divorce. Families, uh, children who don't know if they're going to weekend daddy this week or the other daddy. This is the world's idea of marriage, friends. And it is an abomination to God and it brings nothing but misery to families. Do it God's ways. Your flesh hates it, I know, but seek the grace of God and you will find blessing. And I hope you understand that all of this, and this is why I've been bringing the scripture out. This is not my idea for marriage. This is not Rom's marriage seminar. I brought you the scripture so that you can understand Christ's idea, which is based on his own redemptive work. The husband in the place of Christ to love his wife as he loves himself. The wife in the place of the church to reverence and submit to her husband. They both together seek the grace of God. And we'll talk about what if one spouse is not a believer another time. But you have to see here that the husband, right, if his wife is an unbeliever, still to love her as Christ loves his bride. Because the bride of Christ is so sinful. And he loved her anyways. Well, that'll be another day. But the husband or wife who refuse these roles are going against the ordinance of Christ, which means it should never be a surprise. If, 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 if your marriage, if you've refused in your marriage or as you prepare for marriage, if you refuse these roles and you refuse to see the pattern for marriage and what ought to be the design for marriage, and you wonder, why is my marriage falling apart? Don't be so foolish as to ask the question when you won't do it God's way, by God's grace. And if your home is not what it ought to be, find hope in Christ today. You know, the beautiful redemptive picture of marriage is that Jesus Christ can heal any home, any issues, just as he redeemed his bride. 
And as you think on your home and how it falls short of this pattern here, I would just say, husband and wife, first repent of your own sins before you consider your spouse's. Believe that if you earnestly seek the Lord to make your marriage glorify him, to reflect the glory of the heavenly marriage, he will honor you for it. Both husbands and wives, both are called to do what is contrary to their flesh, but they are to do it out of love for Christ, in the fear of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And all believers, no matter whether married or not, whether facing difficulties in marriage or not, you all can say this, I have the best marriage of all, the wonderful heavenly marriage of Jesus Christ awaiting for me. I am engaged to be the Lord's, and I believe that by faith. And that will make you endure any marriage this side of glory. Let's stop there. Next time we will consider the women's role in more detail. But until then, let us arise for prayer. Oh, our Father and our God, how we bless you that Jesus Christ says that he makes all things new. We thank you that uh, though Adam and Eve, they uh, were terrible to one another, Jesus Christ loves his bride so richly that he gave himself for her to present her spotless before the throne of God instead of shying away from her and blaming God, our Lord Jesus Christ takes on his bride's sins. And for that cause, we are glad, Father. Oh, what a horrible thing it would be if Christ said of us, uh, it was this woman that you gave me, God. It is her fault, and he would be right to say it, unlike Adam. And so, Father, we are thankful that Jesus Christ has come to redeem his bride. And as we consider marriage, uh, particularly this side of glory, Pray for all the marriages here, that they would be ordered according to the divine precept, and that as husband and wife look at each other in Christ as heirs of the grace of life, that they would see Christ in one another, and that they would seek to honor Christ, and that for the sake of the glory of Christ, our marriages would be strengthened and healed, and the world would take note, and that they would see a gospel picture in our homes. And so for the glory of Christ, Father, we ask that you would uh, strengthen our marriages, keep the evil one far away, far away. He entered that first marriage, Father, keep him far away from our own earthly marriages. For we know that Jesus Christ has conquered Satan at the cross to save his bride. Oh, we bless you, Father, for Christ. Would you bless your people now as we uh, apply these things to our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.